Good evening, I'm Pastor Eric Targe. Thank you for joining us tonight as we look at the secret of true spirituality. We're gonna be spending the next four weeks in Romans 8. In tonight's text, Romans 8, 1 through 11, I believe that we are going to see that the secret of true spirituality is that life-giving spirituality is not a practice, but a person. We've all met people who would claim to be spiritual, but not religious. If you're like me, you've probably met quite a few of those people. And what they mean by this actually is a variety of things, but it kind of boils down to, to three main things, right? It's, first, it's a belief in uh, something beyond just the material world. Second, it's a desire to attend to the inner self with a hope of gaining some self-knowledge. And, and third, it's a value on virtues, virtues like compassion and, and justice and probably above all else, authenticity, being true to yourself. As the pastor for college students here at the Moody Church, I've had the opportunity to sit on many different university campuses and talk to students about a variety of things. But, but one conversation uh, really sticks with me. I remember sharing the gospel with a student. And as we were having this longer conversation toward the end of it, he shared with me, he said, listen, I, Pastor Eric, I love what you do, but I just want to live. You see, the, the spirit of our age has said that, that spirituality or you doing you is life, but religion is death. And unfortunately, I believe that that idea, that, that cultural moment, that cultural word has actually snuck into the church. I'll never forget when I was in seminary, I went on a church youth group retreat with a church in New York. And, and one night of this retreat, there was a guy they invited who shared his testimony of having uh, lived a life of great sexual promiscuity, of going around and making lots of money, spending late nights in clubs over and over and over again. And then we all got into our small groups. And one of the kids, one of the kids in this small group, one of the high school students confessed with just such great guilt saying, I know it's wrong, but I wish I could have lived a little bit before becoming a Christian. You see, friends, we, we as a culture, we as a world, and maybe even a little bit, we as a church have embraced and universalized the motto of the French revolution live free or die. But it's possible that, that in, in embracing that motto, we've, we focused on what it means to be free and what it means to die, but, but never actually dissecting what it means to live. Perhaps too often we are like ignorant fish dreaming of freedom outside of the water only to find on our first successful leap into the air that we were not built for the air. The Apostle Paul has come to this conclusion that life-giving spirituality is, is not found where he thought he would find it. It's not found in a practice, but in a person. And that person is the person of the Holy Spirit. Over these uh, next four weeks, we're going to be looking at Romans 8, where the Holy Spirit who gives life is mentioned 21 times. That's more references to the Holy Spirit than any other chapter in all of the Bible. And so if you're looking for a life-giving spirituality, can I just encourage you tonight to join us as we look to perhaps what is perhaps most, uh, the most famous book on spirituality in the most spirit-focused chapter of that book. 
And listen, no matter who you are, Christian, non-Christian, no matter how you identify, I believe that as we look at this first part of this chapter, these first 11 verses, that what we're going to see is that there is no other form of spirituality that gives as much life to our souls, to our minds, and to our bodies as the Holy Spirit revealed in the Bible. So if you would, why don't you look with me? We're going we're gonna to look at this idea of spirituality first of the Holy Spirit giving life to our souls. If you have a Bible, open it up to Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 1. Here is how it begins. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to focus first on this word, therefore. It's important that we start with that word, therefore, because we need to take every text and situate it within its larger context, no matter what piece of literature you're looking at. Otherwise, we can take a sentence from the cat in the hat and make it out to be an anarchist's manifesto. That is not what's going on here. No, Paul is continuing an argument that he has been making for the first seven chapters of this letter. And that argument is simple. We might kind of understand it in in, in three little terms. First, there is a God. Second, he has a standard. And third, we do not meet it. Let's talk about that a little bit first. First, there is a God. What is he saying when 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 he's arguing throughout this book that there is a God? He's arguing that if you have a belief beyond the material, if you believe something beyond the material world, then that must mean that something in the spiritual world created that which is material. The Bible identifies this material maker as as God. And the God of the Bible reveals himself as a singular being who is simultaneously three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hence, it is is core to God's nature that he is relational. And he, he wants a relationship with humanity. But just as being relational is part of his nature... So it's part of his nature to be good. And to be good means that if you are truly in control of all things, you must be just. And if you're just, if you're a person of justice, if you're a God of justice, then that must mean that you have a standard. There is a God. He has a standard. You see, there are a lot of people that struggle with that first one. They're like, okay, I don't know about the idea of there being a God, but I do believe in justice. I do believe in virtue. See, I want to argue really quick that if if you do believe in virtue, there must be a a virtue giver. Otherwise, it's absolutely arbitrary and cultural, and we can't actually call evil evil. We would be forced to say that society forms virtue, and therefore, if it's deemed virtuous by 1940s German society for Hitler to slaughter six million Jews, then that's virtuous for them. They do them. If it's deemed virtuous by a group of officers for George Floyd to have his neck kneeled on for eight minutes and 46 seconds while he cries out, I can't breathe, then that's virtuous for them. But but no, we as a culture have have said no to that. We, We are angered by those who are killed unjustly because we recognize that virtue is above culture. If there is no divine virtue giver, then there is no true absolute virtue. So there is a God. He's assuming. There is a standard. He's assuming. assuming. And, and lastly, he says, we don't meet it. You see, the, the, the reason most people go searching for spirituality is because they've discovered the reality that, that we as humans are broken. As the philosopher Blaise Pascal said, humans by, the, by their very nature are paradoxical. 
Think about it with me. We're purveyors of poetry and pornography. We invented slavery and pharmacies. We're abolitionists and abortionists. You see, when when we live free in this world with the ethics of you do you, we've all found that we can't even meet the standards that we've set for ourselves. But Paul tried a different way. He didn't go with self-regulation. Rather, he went with divine regulation, God's law, a good law, but still it crushed him. Paul says in Romans 3, a couple chapters before this, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And lest we think this, this former Pharisee is speaking about everybody else, but not himself, as Pharisaical people often do, uh, right before this chapter begins, in chapter 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He laments, saying, with his flesh, he serves the law of sin. You see, that's the point that, that Paul's making in verses 2 to 3 of, of Romans 8. He says that the law was simultaneously too good and not good enough. Look there with me. He says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now let's clarify. Paul is talking about two laws here the law of sin and death, and then the law of the spirit of life, or the law of of true freedom. Now, when he's talking about the law of sin and death, what he's talking about there is the 613 laws of the Old Testament. And as as you and I hear that phrase, we might be tempted to think, oh, is, is, is Paul saying the law is bad? He calls it the law of sin and death, but no. Paul is not saying that this law is sinful and breeds a culture of death. That's not at all it. Rather, what Paul is saying is that this law was meant to show us our sin and the way that it leads to, which is the way of death. You see, the the law established the standard, but the standard was too good because the standard was God himself. And mankind, because of our quote-unquote Freedom, which is a false freedom, could not meet the standard of the law. You see, the the law wasn't designed to, to save us. The law was designed to show us. The law was the the sign on the road telling us to to slow down, not the jaws of life or ambulance seeking to come and tear you away from your wreckage and revive you. So the law did its job. We just didn't do ours. So here comes the second law, the law of true freedom. It's the the law of the spirit. Friends, I, I know some are thinking when they hear the law of the spirit, they're like, oh great, Christianity just has more rules, more laws, but no. One of, the, one of the wonderful things about Romans 8 is that there are absolutely none. There are no commands in all 39 verses of this chapter. Why is that? Because it's about the Spirit's role in salvation. And there is nothing you can do, we're going to find, nothing that you can do to affect your standing before God in salvation if you are in Christ Jesus. Paul continues, he said, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Let's keep going. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, the the law of freedom is a non-law. It's freedom because the, the standard we could not meet, God met for us by sending his son, Jesus. Think about it this way. The law of sin says, don't do that. But the law of freedom, the law of the spirit says, Jesus died for that. The law of sin and death says, don't be that. The law of the spirit says, everything you need to be, Jesus is for you and in you through the spirit. You see, it's for this reason that there is no condemnation. The the standard that could not be met, God meets in us through the spirit because of Jesus Christ. If only you, you look to him. If only you trust in him. If only you turn from your false freedom and fall back on his true freedom. One theologian put it this way. I liked it. He said, Christ becomes what we are so that we might become what Christ is. Let me explain it uh, another way. Imagine after a, a long day of work, uh, you're, you're thinking about, you're, you're running home and you're really hungry and you're thinking about this pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream that you have put in the back of your freezer. For me, my favorite's always gonna be Chubby Hubby. And so you have that Chubby Hubby ice cream that you labeled, you put your name on because you didn't want your roommate to touch. And once you get home, you open your freezer to find that your pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream has, has been eaten. And so you get angry. You think, oh, my roommate's awful. He doesn't respect my property. He doesn't respect me. And so you, you get angry and you start screaming. And maybe from, from screaming, you decide that you are going to destroy your roommate's property. And your neighbor hears this. And I know it's getting out of hand. Your neighbor hears all of this getting out of hand. And so they decide to call the police. And then the police show up at your house. And in tow with the police is your roommate who points out to you that your pint of Ben and Jerry's is still sealed and labeled and behind the frozen peas. Now the police officer asks you, would you, ask the roommate, he says, would you, would you like to press charges? Now, a good roommate, imagine with me, says, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to press charges. It's, it's all right. To err is human, to forgive is divine. And unfortunately, I think that's how we, we typically encapsulate the gospel. We, we did a great evil, we sinned, we sinned against God, and so we are forgiven. All the legal condemnation is gone. But let's be honest, friends. The moment the police officer leaves, your roommate is going to their room, and they are hopping on Trulia, hot pads, Redfin, and they are looking for a new place to stay because they do not want to be with your crazy And even if they do plan on sticking around, the truth is that once your lease comes to an end, they are going to be finding a new roommate. You see, there's there's no legal condemnation in this uh, story, but there still is relational condemnation. You see, what if that roommate said to you, hey, after the police officer left, what do you say let's buy a house together? What do you say let's sign a lifelong lease? You see, that's, that's, what God promises to us. Hear, hear me. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say, it does not say that you will no longer be condemned. It does not say that all the condemnation from the past is gone away. It says that the category of condemnation does not exist 
for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. It's the lifelong lease. That's what we have been granted. And that's the the beauty of the gospel. It means that, friends, you can stop asking Jesus into your heart every time you sin. He's here to stay. You can stop living in condemnation because you fail him. Here's the good word. He will not fail you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the spirit of life has set you free. So if you know Jesus, friend, be free. The spirit is life to our souls. And I said more. The the, the spirit is not just life to our souls. The spirit is also life to our minds. Would you continue reading with me Romans 8? We're going to Romans 8, verses 5 to 7. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. What Paul is saying here is that the the brokenness of our humanity reaches beyond our ways of thinking even more deeply into, into our desires. The reality is that our, our desires are diseased. The Anglican Bishop William Temple once said, he said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. All of us, either now or at one point in our lives, were religiously fleshly. We had our minds set on the flesh, as Paul says, while while we have cared deeply about others and a variety of causes, what was first on our mind was me and my. Just, I mean, do a moment of self-reflection. Think about how you talk throughout the week. My comfort, my protection, my finances, my image, my family, my future, my potential, my rights. Occasionally we do, we venture out to the care Uh, for the care of others. But when our minds drift to neutral, it drifts back to me. And what does this do to us? It makes us hostile. It makes us hostile to God because who is he to tell me to deny myself? And it makes us hostile to anyone who would dare tread on our rights and our liberties. You see, our, our care for the brokenness of others will only go so far as our comfort zone goes. This is a problem. You see, Paul, Paul, Paul's point here is that hostility is anti-life. Look down at your Bible at, at verse 7. It says that the flesh is dead and hostile. And then look at verse 6. The spirit is life and peace. The point is that the life-giving spirit, the Holy Spirit, is actually allergic to hostility. Hostility with God is is anti-life because he is the God of life. And hostility with others is anti-life because we are made in the image of the God of life. You see, we, we get these words, life and peace and hostility here, but they're, they're not actually unique to the text. The, the words life and hostility and peace are actually repeated in another section of another letter known as Ephesians. And it's likely that the Romans got their hands on Ephesians at one point and the Ephesians got their hands on the book of Romans. Uh, but I, I want to turn your attentions to, 
to that section where these words repeat. It's Ephesians 2. Look there with me. Uh, Ephesians 2, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice that. Peace, hostility, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, Romans 8 might make you think that divine reconciliation is the end-all and be-all of the gospel. And Ephesians 2 might tempt you to think that racial and ethnic reconciliation is the culmination of the gospel. But when you put the Bible together as it was meant to be understood, we find that they are inseparable. That the mind that is alive in the spirit is a place where hostility is dead and peace reigns. You see, Christians are not just non-hostile people. They're anti-hostile people because they're peace and life people. You see, non-hostility has the Jewish person say to the Samaritan, what's done is done. Let's put our prejudices behind us and let's just live in peace. Non-hostility says to the Romans, the past is the past. Just stay out of my synagogue. Non-hostility says to the Greek, you can, you can worship next to me, but, but your problems are your problems. Keep that out of my worship. You see, non-hostility is not peace. Non-hostility is hostility on mute. Non-hostility is the roommate who chooses not to press charges, but peace is anti-hostility and signs the lifelong lease. You see, peace restores. Peace builds. It's, it's, it's not enough to be non-hostile. Peace is anti-hostile. It's not enough to be non-prejudiced. We must be anti-prejudiced. It's not enough to be a non-idolater. Christians should be anti-idolatry in our hearts. See, Paul's point, though, here is not that people uh, think like this. Uh, they, they, they are like this because they think like this, although that's partly true, but rather that they think like this because they are like this. If you turn your attention to, to verse 5, if you look at verse 5 of, of chapter 8, you see, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You see, there's that word that's inserted there, the word live. But you need to know that the word live is actually not original to the text. Uh, the word live was, was added to help us understand, kind of make this sound a little bit better as we read it. Really, what it's saying is those who are of the flesh and those who are of the Spirit, meaning this is just who we are. Paul isn't telling Christians to, to do anything here. What Paul is trying to point out is that Christians are spiritually minded. You see, if, if you have Christ, a spiritual mindset has been granted to you. This is what identifies us as Christians, a, a, ready to, a readiness to, to suffer earthly loss so that we might gain the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Now hear me. Before you start thinking, oh, well, well I don't have that. Perhaps I need to ask Jesus into my heart again. Uh, if, if you're a Christian, 
the Holy Spirit is nurturing that attitude in you, working against the the earthly mindedness still left in you and in me. It's still there, but the Spirit is, is cleaning it out. But still, in Romans 12, 2, Paul traces this idea of the mind being given life a little bit further. Look at Romans 12, 2 with me. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What, what Paul is saying is that even though you have been granted a spiritual mindset, you can resist. Friends, you can be conformed to something else. I, I bring this up because I, I don't want you to be mistaken. I don't want you to, to think that, okay, well now because I have the Holy Spirit in me, anything I think as a Christian is spiritual and acceptable and perfect. Friends, I think too many Christians have that mindset. Too many Christians who believe that they have the spiritual gift of discernment when in actuality they have the disease of division. Some of your minds have been conformed to this world. You've conformed to prosperity. You've conformed to the American dream. You've conformed to politicians. You've conformed to fleshly desires. And God's word to you is simple. Look up. Colossians 3 says, Set your minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. You might think, got to look up. How am I going to do that? But the good news in Christ is that passage we were talking about earlier in Ephesians 2, it actually starts by saying that you who are in Christ are seated with him in the heavenly places. The good news for you as a Christian is you don't need to strain. Christ lives in you through his spirit. Just look to him. Look to him. Filter your thoughts through him. Filter your decisions through him and you might have life for your mind. The spirit is life to our souls. The spirit is life to our minds. And one more point I want to make before we end looking at this text this, e- this evening. The spirit is life to our bodies. Look at verses 8 through 11 with me. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You know, we could spend four weeks on those four verses alone. It would not be enough to unpack all the riches of those verses. Here's what what God through Paul wants to to make clear, though, I think. If I could summarize it, I'd summarize it in three words. Here it is. Uh, It's that if, if you're outside of the Spirit, if you're outside of Christ, you are dead. That's it. You're you're dead. You're dead morally. And you're, you're dead physically. I mean, look at it. Verse 8 says that we're dead morally. You, you can't ble- please God. Your body is unable to be tamed to, the, to, to purity and to goodness outside of the spirit. You're dead physically. 
I mean, let's just be real. <laughs> Our bodies are unable to escape decay. All of us are, are withering away at a slightly slower rate than the bananas that are sitting on your counter. But, but with the Holy Spirit, we see Paul say that he gives life to our mortal, withering bodies. Friends, this is the good news. This is the good news that no one else is offering. The Holy Spirit gives life to our souls, to our minds, and yes, even our bodies, our physical, biological brokenness is healed in the Spirit. Not all now, certainly then, in heaven, we will experience this. What, 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 what's the point? Here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, when you get to heaven, you are not going to find any plastic surgery offices. You are not going to find any aging cream. There will be no purity filters on heavenly internet. There will be no marches for justice because the air that we breathe will be justice. See, one of the promises of of the gospel is that biological death and the culture of death brought about by our physical actions and decay will be defeated in God's kingdom. And while we don't experience the, the tangible fullness of that piece of good news now here on earth, we, we do experience it in part as bondage to sin and decay is broken by our new bondage to the spirit, to the spirit who lives inside of us. You see, in, in, in these four verses on how the Spirit brings life to our bodies, it's essential to note that his life-giving presence is not something that we wait for. Look again, look with me at verse 10. It says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Paul says that, that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit, you don't have Christ. What does that mean? It means that if, if you could download Christianity onto a smartphone, a smartphone of a body, there would be no in-app purchases. Too often, we as a church have, have broken out people into to three categories, right? We think there are non-Christians, there are ordinary Christians, and then there are spiritual Christians. But Paul is saying here that there is no Christian who does not have the Spirit living within them. I hope we don't hope we don't miss the radical nature of what, what Paul is saying has happened to us. Romans 8 says that for anyone who puts their faith in Christ, God's spirit dwells in them bodily. To, to understand the glorious statement here that would have truly rocked the world of all Israelites who, who would hear this, we need only turn to Exodus 20, where we see God speak to the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai. He recites the Ten Commandments, those ten words to them, and they are so overcome that they say, Moses, we cannot bear to even hear the voice of the Spirit of God again, lest we die. Only later in the book of Exodus, we see that uh, God's Spirit is going to dwell in the middle of a tabernacle, and then in the middle of the temple. And in order to protect the people from the sheer glory of God, he has curtains put up all around the temple that become walls in the, in the finished temple. And the, the glory of it all is that only, only one day every year, one priest, the high priest, is able to enter 
into that, that innermost room where God's spirit actually dwells. And when that priest would go in to atone for the sins of all of Israel first, he had to make sure that he was completely pure. And then they would tie a rope onto his waist with bells just in case he was not pure enough. Because if he was not pure enough, he would be struck dead. They would hear the bells hit the ground and they would l- drag his lifeless body away because God is that pure, that glorious. And friends, Paul says that spirit lives inside of you. That spirit lives inside of you if you know Jesus. That all-consuming life, that all-consuming light, brighter than the sun, lives in you. That's that's the good news to our bodies. That's the the good news that, that we have. You see, no other religion offers this. No other spirituality can can promise this. They might say that there's a path to enlightenment. They might claim a greater spiritual knowledge. They might have created a perverted twisting of all of this and say that you yourself are a God and you just need to get enough self-knowledge to, to understand that. But you know your broken heart. You know your limitations. I had the blessing of, of interviewing Becky Pippert a few weeks ago. She's an author and evangelist who's taught evangelism with her husband on six different continents. And she was talking to one of her friends recently who truly believed that idea. She believed that she herself was a God, that she was in control of all things. Uh, and then COVID-19 hit. And she realized she didn't have nearly as much control as she thought she did. She, she ended a call with Becky saying, What kind of God would need to take anxiety pills? Friends, if you are your own God, you will fail. You will decay. From dust you came to dust you will return. But the good news is that true spirituality, life-giving spirituality is not a practice, but a person. God himself taking residence in you giving life to your soul, to your mind, and to your body. When Jesus was was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He replied by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5, saying to the Pharisees, love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. He continued saying a second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he he went on to describe the neighbor as the one we were least like, perhaps the one we had the greatest disdain for, most ignorance of, and apathy to. You see, these, these two things go together. But Paul said that it's impossible in the flesh to even start. Earlier in the letter, Paul quotes Isaiah, saying, none is righteous. No, not one. No one truly seeks after God. What's the big idea of these 11 verses? It's that only through the Holy Spirit can you please God with your love of him and your love of neighbor. It's only through the Holy Spirit that you can have true reconciliation, both vertical with God and horizontal to your neighbor. And the only way that you get the Holy Spirit is if you are first got by Jesus, whom God raised from the dead so that you might have life. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Friend, receive the freedom of no condemnation. 
Set your mind on what is yours in Christ and live free to serve him. Are you still living under the yoke of an alternative spirituality or impossible self-regulations? Look to Jesus who says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's easy because he bore it. It's light because it's the spirit working and doing it in you. Tonight, look to Jesus and live. Holy Father, we pray that life might be known wherever we are seated right now, on our couch, at the kitchen table, in our bed. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit might meet us, showing us the life of Christ. Lord, as people who are outside of the Holy Spirit, Lord, as they are, as they are watching this, we pray that you might work in those hearts. And for those, Lord, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, help them to truly live in and experience and have joy and peace in the freedom that you bring. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.